Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 297 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a landscape photographer living in St. Louis, Missouri, Nick Becker. Nick is someone who continually writes thoughtful articles that I have greatly enjoyed over the years, and his photography is quite contemplative and enjoyable to view. So I thought he would make for an excellent guest on the podcast. Nick and I talk quite extensively about creativity and neuroscience that supports various theories on creativity. So sit back and enjoy our conversation. Before we start, I wanted to make one more plea for your support of the podcast on Patreon. I found it a bit shocking that just under 1% of listeners support the show. I get it. Times are tough right now and everyone has their hand out. However, I like to operate under the belief that if something provides you with value, you should pay something in return. This is known as the value for value model and I believe very strongly in it. As long as you're giving me more than $0, I think it's a fair transaction. For everyone who already is supporting the show on Patreon, thank you so much. You are the best. For those of you who are not, please go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen to support the show. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Nick Becker. All right, Nick Becker, it's great to have you on the podcast, my friend. Yeah, it's an absolute honor to be here, Matt. Uh, my favorite podcast. It's kind of surreal talking with you. <laughs> right. I, it's not fair. I feel like everyone knows me, but I don't know them. So, you know, you're going to have to give me some time to catch up. Okay, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> well, so I don't even have a clue how I found out, found you. Uh, I feel like I started following you on Twitter a long time ago, maybe. Twitter's basically devoid of interesting conversation most of the time so whenever I post something even remotely interesting it's like oh that's an interesting person yeah right so yeah I feel that <laughs> so I think that's probably how I discovered you but glad to have you here so for people that aren't familiar with Nick Becker the most famous St. <laughs> Louis landscape photographer not named Jack Curran would love for you to tell us more about yourself oh, um... that was a joke by the way <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, I, like I said, I, I live in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, with my wife, um, my three-month-old daughter, um, two dogs. I am not a professional photographer, uh, so I, I make my living as a software engineer. But uh, I, I spend as much of my free time as I can on photography and um, being outdoors. Uh, I've been doing photography seriously. I'm, air quotes with that, but um, been doing photography seriously since probably about 2017. Um, I, you know, did a little bit before then, but I think 2017 is kind of um, when my focus shifted. I went from just trying to take pretty pictures uh, to, to, to trying to make something a little more meaningful from my practice. So at that point, I found a, a little bit of a renewed focus. What was the catalyst for that switch? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so I, I've always been into art. So I like, I kind of had that background. I did a lot of art, a lot of drawing as a kid. I took art through high school. Um, so it was part of my life for uh, a really long time, like pretty much all through childhood. And a lot of that just kind of got shelved when I went to college. Um, 
you know, you get caught up in your studies, social life. Um, so uh, I think it was about 2013, 2014 is when I bought my camera. And uh, like I said, kept it pretty casual at first. Uh, really just was making pretty pictures. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Um, got into 500px and, and chased the, the popularity there for just like a minute. Uh, and then uh, once I left grad school in, in 2016, I had a lot more free time on my hands. And so I started doing a lot more backpacking, uh, a lot more hiking. I was in Virginia at the time. So um, I was going out to Shenandoah National Park all the time. Um, and, and nature is also something that's always been super important to me. I, you know, I grew up in rural Iowa, so I, I spent my childhood outside, basically. I was exploring constantly. Um, it was just another one of those things that was hard to make time for when I was a student. So, um, yeah, so then I, you know, I had the art background. I started getting into hiking. And um, at first, I just wanted to have my camera with me, you know, on these, on these awesome experiences that I was having in nature. Uh, and then sometime in, in 2017, I'd been going out to the park for a couple of years. Um, I came to realize just, you know, sort, sort of on my own. I'm sure there were influences at the time, but um, I came to the realization that photography could be a lot more than, than how I was treating it. Um, it was, it's something I, I think I knew, but uh, hadn't really experienced up to that point. So, um, yeah, I must have hiked hundreds of miles in Shenandoah, um, visiting in all all kinds of conditions, all times of year, um, you know, hiking up to mountaintops in the dark, that kind of stuff, the super fun stuff. And um, I don't know, eventually I, I kind of learned to see, uh, maybe because I went there so often, but um, I learned to see past those those grand vistas and um, kind of started noticing a lot of the a lot of the subtleties that, that really like made the, the park memorable for me. Um, and I found that photography could actually kind of help facilitate this, this quiet, personal experience that um, that I needed at the time so so that's that's kind of what what shifted um, 2018 we moved to st. Louis uh, but the, the the learning and discovery hasn't really stopped since that point nice I wanted to kind of kick us off with a very simple question and it's one of my favorites because it can go in so many different directions and it helps us get to understand you as well but simple why do you make photographs yeah it's uh, also a really good question uh so i i've actually i've tried to write about this you hear photographers talking a lot about like oh what's their why and um trying to put into words why they they do what they do uh i've i've tried that i've tried that many times and I, i've never really come up with an answer that's super satisfying <laughs> so i was i was thinking about it and you know i think um i think i have a good answer for why i got into photography initially you know i had that had that background in art, I loved being outdoors, I wanted to share these experiences. And that was kind of the way it started. But the way my relationship with photography has kind of matured over the years, like at this point, I, I can't imagine not doing it. It's kind of become more than a hobby. It's it's like a whole outlook. Um, it changes how you look at things. Uh, there's never, there, there's very few moments that go by when I'm not thinking about photography or something related to photography. Um, like, I think I could probably sell all my gear tomorrow and I would still think about photography every day for the rest of my life. So it's just like, I don't know, it's like a virus that I can't get rid of. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe, but I, I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. But, but I mean, I, I keep doing this. I, I guess the closest thing I have to an answer is I, I keep doing this because it's really like 
uh, it's become a part of me. Like, and I know that sounds cheesy, uh, but in some way, I, I do feel like photography is almost tied up with my identity right now. It's 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 pretty inseparable. Hmm. No, I I feel the same way. I've probably felt that way now for gosh, maybe six or seven years, maybe for myself, where it's just yeah. inseparable. And yeah, it's I like it though. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. I mean, it can be, it can also be kind of annoying because, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie. There's, there's days at work when I'm just like, man, I'm just, I'm, my mind is, is not at all on the work. Like my mind is, is totally out there, like in the woods. Literally. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so you had said that there was a point where you kind of recognized that the photography could be more of a kind of a process of exploration of this quietness that you were seeking. And I'm mm -hmm. really curious to dive deeper into kind of what you meant by that quietness that you were seeking. Like, is that, is it a reprieve from the chaos of day-to-day -day life? Is it, um, you know, dealing with some really terrible childhood trauma? Is it <laughs> like you have a really mean boss at work? Like, what is that quietness about for you? Yeah getting kind of personal. And I don't already. mean to minimize either any of those things, by the way. Sure, sure, sure. Um, no, at the time, um, so I don't think I would have put it in the same words at the time. Um, but like, so like, I, I think I mentioned I, I was born and raised in, in rural Iowa. Like my hometown is like, I don't know, 650, 700 people. Like it's quiet. Um, and so at that point, uh, I had left grad school, uh, I was going to grad school in Baltimore. Uh, and then I was down in like the DC metro area and it was just like chaos, you know, like, um, it was like oil and water. Like I just, I was, I could, I felt like I couldn't fit in and I, I felt like, um, very much like a fish out of water. You know, it is, it's kind of stereotypical. Like your, your, uh, your quiet country kid gets dropped into a big city and just like, doesn't know what to do with himself. So, um, yeah, I was feeling pretty overwhelmed at the time and, um, leaving grad school was, um, was a big decision for me. And, um, you know, I, I kind of changed the direction that I was going with my life and, you know, I was just, it's, it, it was like that, that quarter life crisis kind of thing. Like I was, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was, I was sort of like a fish out of water. Um, but I found that like by going out to Shenandoah, like it was like this true wilderness experience. Like there's just, you know, miles and miles and miles of trails. And like, you can, you can find true like solitude out there. I mean, you could spend days exploring that park, I think, and probably not see another soul. Um, so yeah, like I, even though the park was probably like, hour and a half, two hours away. I mean, I was going out there. there. There were spells I was going out there every weekend and it was totally worth the drive. And I had an awesome podcast to listen to at the time too. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I heard that there's more pigs than people in Iowa. That could be. I, I, I don't have any numbers in front of me, but I, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah. Well, I could, so I could see how that shift from being super rural, you know, quiet, you know, farmland type scenario to a big city like Washington, D.C. of all places would be quite a shock to your core. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty jarring. I feel yeah. like I got used to it by the end of it, but um, I don't think I would have been able to keep my head about me if I hadn't had that, you know, that outlet. So now you, now you live in an even 
wilder city in St. Louis. So is the kind of <clears throat> your reasons for exploring nature with the camera still the same in terms of that quietness? Or are there any additional layers that you've kind of discovered through the process of photography that keep you going back? Yeah, that's a... Um... That's interesting. Uh, so I, I will say St. Louis is, is definitely like doesn't meet the same level of uh, hubbub and, and East Coast culture that uh, not not even East Coast. I, DC, I, I guess it is technically East Coast, but um, but yeah, like the the pace is, is definitely different, um, much more of a Midwestern uh, pace here. So I, I don't feel as much like a fish out of water here, um, but I, I do still think that that quietness um it's still something I, I very much want. It might not be something that, uh, you know, objectively speaking, I feel like I need as much, but it's it's definitely something that, like, I can't go without. Okay. Well, I know that um, you mentioned you have a background in computer science. So how has that informed your approach to photography and how you think about it and how you make images? So... I do think that um, having the background that I do has equipped me for um, for pursuing a lot of the, the questions and the curiosities that I have. I have like the tools at my disposal to, to pursue those. Um, so it's it's easier to, I guess, feed the creative beast. Uh, but I actually, I think I would almost actually turn the question around and, and, and say like, I actually think there's been a greater impact in the other direction. I think that being mm. a creative person um, has probably impacted the way I approach problems as a software engineer. You know, I've I've been doing creative stuff a lot longer than I've been a software engineer, a lot longer than I've ever was, you know, since before I was a computer science major. So um, I think the impact is kind of more the other direction. Um, but at its core, computer science is, is about problem solving. Like it's not, it's not about like programming or writing code. Like it's, it's really just about thinking about problems. Um, and I think that going into a challenging problem with, uh, with a non-obvious solution, which they're all non-obvious, um, but like it's, it's, it's immensely beneficial to have kind of like an open mindset about, about trying creative approaches. Um, so maybe that's trying something new or unconventional um, or like applying a concept in my life that, uh, that I've encountered elsewhere um, to the problem at hand. I think that kind of being creative, like ultimately, I think it's kind of enabled me to um, sort of like cross pollinate between different areas of my life and, and be, be open and willing to that idea um, to kind of pull in ideas from, from various disciplines that I've studied and applying solutions from one, one domain to another. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do think like, I do think that being creative makes me a better engineer rather than and being an engineer making me a better photographer. Well, I'm going to press you further because I'm also wondering if, because you mentioned computer science is all about problem solving, mm -hmm. right? So I'm curious, do you approach photography as a problem that needs to be solved? I don't think I do. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, yeah, for, for me, like photography is, is a lot more about being open to experiences rather than, going in and trying to like solve some problem. I mean, it's, it's nice because I, you know, I can, I can sort of do both, you know, mm -hmm. like um, if, if there is 
if there is something that I'm interested in, you know, like I have this uh, sort of problem solving mindset and um, I, I feel like I, you know, I've solved enough problems that I can, like, I'm, I'm generally not afraid to like just dive into anything. Like I, I'm usually fairly confident about my ability to solve problems, but, but I don't, I don't feel like those are usually the kind of problems that I um, would encounter in photography. So how has that changed over the course of your photography career in terms of your approach to it from a openness perspective versus a, hey, this is a problem I'm trying to solve or I'm just making a photograph of something that I think looks pretty because I think those are three very different approaches to making images. Yeah, I, I might have had that approach early on, like trying to approach um, making a photograph like like a problem. And I think that that in itself was probably problematic because you go in and, and you're not you're not open minded about um, about the experience. So, you know, I, I got caught up in like in the early days, you get on social media, you know, the, the usual stuff going for those, like going out, sunset, sunrise, um, you got to get those wide angle sunset shots, you know, sort of like the very formulaic shots. And, and I think that like, sometimes I was probably trying to apply that like problem solving mentality to, to that kind of shot. Um, but ultimately, like, I, I didn't keep doing that because it just, it wasn't satisfying. And I found a different approach that worked better for me. What, <clears throat> what was it? I guess two questions. What was it about that approach that wasn't satisfying? And what was it about being more open and curious that was more satisfying? In my experience, it was just too stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it can be very stressful. Um, I, man, I, I remember like in, in Shenandoah, like I would be out there up on a, a rocky mountaintop and like the lights, you know, the lights going down and, oh man, I got to find a foreground, you know, like I got to get this lined up. <laughs> and if I don't, this whole experience was just a waste. Like, what am I doing out here if I don't walk away with a, you know, a wide angle, colorful shot? Um, so like, yeah. I don't know, I did that, but like, I, I didn't, I didn't really know of any other way at the time. Like you just like, you, you get on, as soon as you get on social media and you, you see everybody else doing that, you're like, oh, that's how you do photography. Right. But yeah. like, it's, and so it's almost like it, it's a growing pain that I feel like everybody's got to go through. Like you, you have to experience that, that stress, that panic as the sun is setting before you can move on to something better. Um, and yeah, I, I remember like, I, I think it was fall of, of 2017, but I was, I was going out for a camping trip. I was going to meet up with my cousin who was out there. And on the way in, I was you know, cruising along, there's basically just like one long road that goes up through the park. It's like, it's a, it's a very uh, long and like long north to south park. Um, so I was going along this, this winding road, Skyline Drive. Um, and it was early in the morning. There was tons of like mists flowing through the valleys and it was just like unbelievable. And, and I remember stopping at an overlook because I was a little early anyway, and I had my camera. And I remember stopping and I'm just like, trying to take it all in because it's just like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I, I don't, I don't know. It was just like probably the closest thing to an epiphany I've had, but I was just like, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to try something different. And I, I, I put on the telephoto lens and, and I kind of just like zoomed in and I didn't even take a photo for, for a while. Like I just watched it because 
when you zoomed in, you could see the mist kind of like flowing through these trees. And it was, it was just super incredible. I still have the, I mean, the photo is still one of my favorites that I walked away with, but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely not trying to take it all in at once. It was, it was very much like not, not consciously, but very much like, I'm just going to like take a minute. I'm going to take a breath. And I, I feel like, it just it worked out really well and it was i was kind of like okay well maybe maybe i need to try this approach more often like maybe i just need to slow down um there's a big piece of it too that i feel like is a mindset you know like when you're not so worried about getting that quote unquote banger sunset photo you kind of relieve that pressure of yourself and i think once you do that it kind of gives you the space to open yourself up to being open to finding other things too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that a hundred percent. Like if you're, if you're stressing out and it, it's, it's almost like an expectations thing. Like if you're, if you're stressing out because you feel like you need to get a certain shot, um, you're, you're closing yourself off to everything else that's in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going in a slightly different direction, I know that, you had mentioned you're a new dad, so first of all, congratulations. And uh, thank you. I know you're at the three month mark now, so maybe you are starting to get sleep again. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, um, we are starting to get some sleep. We've actually been doing pretty good. Um, probably, probably three or four weeks now. She's been she's been doing great. Um, you nice. know, from about nine, if we can get her to bed, like before 9.30, she'll usually sleep um, till maybe five or six. So like, that's that's pretty solid. I mean, that's that's good. I, I don't take that for granted. Um, had a couple of rough days the last last few days. Um, I think think two out of the last three days have been have been a little rough, but yeah, um, it gets better. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what everyone says. I think the best advice that um, a friend of ours gave us, well, not really advice, just a, you know, words of wisdom was that child development is not linear so <laughs> <Yes>. like <laughs> it, you know you'll, you'll make a ton of progress and then it'll feel like you just plateau and you might go backwards and then you might make a ton of progress again and that's like that has just been like my mantra like it's you know setbacks are okay overall the trend is the right direction very true yeah well so now that you're a new dad how do you think that will transform your approach to making images if at all yeah, I it's it's pretty early to tell. Um, you know, the, the the biggest impact so far is that it's it's uh, it's November, and I think I only got out a, f a couple times this fall, so that's <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a little unusual. But um, I have been been able to start getting out again, which has been awesome. Um, you know, the the lack of sleep has has also been real. Like I, I feel like right now, there's sometimes I'm just too brain dead to to work on on the stuff I want to work on. Um, yeah, having a kid is, is it's a ton of work and they really don't care about your sleep schedule. So, um, but yeah, go, going forward, I am optimistic that, um, that I'll be able to find a balance. I'm, I'm probably, you know, I know you're, you're a dad, like I'm probably being super naive about this, but, um, I, I am optimistic. I'll be able to find some kind of balance that works. Um, I think having a, an amazing supportive wife who's like on the same page is going to be, uh, critical and, and she understands what photography is to me and probably more than anybody else does and she herself encourages me to to get out of the house when I start getting crabby so uh, I, I think I'll be able to 
start making time again for local excursions and um, maybe when my daughter's a little older, like maybe even some local backpacking again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so like, I, I think because most of what I do is, is local, like I'll be able to kind of get away with that. Uh, as far as like trips, I mean, I don't really do a ton of dedicated photography trips anyway. Um, usually, um, if I'm on a trip, I'm with like my parents or my wife. Um, and so I'm usually trying to like sneak it in or, <laughs> um, or divide my time, you know, go out in the morning and come back or, right. um, so yeah, that, that division of time might, might look a little different. Maybe I'll be dragging my kid out with me. I, I have no idea. Um, yeah. fingers crossed that that all plays out. But, um, the other thing I was going to say is I, 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 I think, um, I, I hope, and maybe this is like. Uh, maybe I'm being, I don't know, too romantic about it, but I, I do think that um, as much as I want to impart the, the like love of art and nature that I have to my daughter, um, I, I, I think that I can probably learn a few things from her too. Like, yes. you know, she's, she's three months old. Like you can just, you can see the curiosity in her eyes, like the way she looks at everything. Cause it's literally the first time she's ever seen it. Like we turn the lights on in the room and it's the most beautiful thing she's ever seen. Um, so like, I, I think we could probably gain a lot by, by just remembering that, that curiosity and I don't know, maybe thinking about trying to see things her way. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I am curious how, like what things will look like in two years, five years, 10 years. Like I have no idea. Yeah. Becoming a parent is quite transformative. At least it was for me, you know, you, it definitely forces you to become much less selfish. Um, you start to see things, different perspectives. Um, and I think you might find that sharing your love of photography and nature will even strengthen that, you know, your love of it by sharing it with your daughter. So it'll be interesting to see how that transforms your photography. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, right. <laughs> We'll, we'll see. I mean, of course, I hope she she grows up and loves photography and loves art, but I'm I'm trying really hard not to set that expectation. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, like I was um I was like an athlete, and you know I love photography. My son hates sports and <laughs> doesn't care about photography. So yeah, good luck, buddy. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I'll try not to set my hopes up too high. Yeah, it's all good though. Well, so I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, like we talked about, and one of my favorite articles that you've shared there is one that you wrote uh, entitled, What Neuroscience Tells Us About Creativity and How to Use It to Our Advantage. I would love for you to tell us about the article and what inspired you to write it. Okay. Um, I had to go back and, and reread it. I wrote that. Um, <laughs> yes. I wrote that almost... Two years ago, uh, yeah. So it was, it was uh, November of 2020. So we were, um, yeah. That was that was pandemic times, like full-on pandemic times. When I wrote that, um, so yeah. The way the way that started, I, I had written another article about creativity before that one. Uh, it was about creativity and uh, comp stomping and originality. Looking back, I don't I don't love that article, <laughs> but I, I think it I think it was important though because it, it got me thinking more about this uh, about creativity, um, and it, it made me want to dig into this topic. And so it was kind of like the starting point for this for this little rabbit hole. Um, 
So the focus of this article was not on trying to provide like a definition of creativity. Um, I think that's fairly well established, you know, novelty, usefulness, that kind of stuff. Um, it's that, That's pretty widely agreed upon. But like what I wanted to do was sort of like change gears and think about uh, think about creativity as like as a process like as as this thing that our brains do um so i did a ton of reading um you know i'm not sure how much detail you want me to get into here but um basically like thinking about creativity as a process um rather than like as a quality uh in my view like it it kind of disentangles it, it disentangles the idea from like of creativity from judgment um, so like being creative becomes something that we do, not necessarily like a measurement of, of the quality of some output of that process. Right. Um, like, that's creative. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's like the, the, the most common way we, we talk about creativity, but right. like, um, but I kind of wanted to shift gears. Like, I, I think that this approach, like if, you know, focusing on creativity as a process, like one i think it's empowering like it, it becomes like i said it becomes just this thing that our brains do like we're all capable of being creative um and then the other really like important thing that it does is it, it sets us up to actually look at how that process is embodied in the brain like how how it is our our, our brains actually do this thing um so so yeah um that was kind of like the the like the first part of the paper or of the of the article, um, so like at that point, then I kind of dove into the into the neuroscience of it, um, and so um, yeah, what I what I found uh, so Roger Beatty is uh, I think he's a researcher. He's in the Department of Psychology at, at Penn State. I don't know if he like pioneered this idea, but he definitely uh, like his his was the paper that I read where I got this stuff. Um, but he he described this process of idea generation and idea evaluation. So this is this is just a, it's a model of creativity. It's it's not like a, a like the literal embodiment of, of how how these thoughts appear in our brain. But um, basically, like I, I read his paper, I thought it was super fascinating. Um, he actually did um, I think it was fMRI experiments. He found um, evidence of default network involvement in idea generation, and so. The default network in your brain is like that's what's active when your um, when your brain is like at rest. Um, air quotes again because your brain's not really at rest, but like if your mind is wandering, um, if you're daydreaming. So he found that this network was was involved uh, when participants were taking part in idea generation tasks. Don't ask me what those tasks were. I don't remember. <laughs> I'd have to go back and reread the paper. Um, like brainstorming. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> And then, so so that's like kind of the idea generation component. And then um, there's this other idea uh, of idea uh, of idea evaluation. Um, so this isn't really just like one network, um, but it's actually multiple regions of the brain that that are involved. Um, but these these um, these networks they're they're all associated with the, the like what we call the cognitive control network. Um, and so this would be activated when you're doing something more intentionally, like when you're focusing on, on a task at hand. Um, so normally, this is like the, the super fascinating part. Normally, these, these networks um, are complementary. And by that, I mean 
when one of them is active, the other disengages. So like you're either focusing on a task or you're not. Um, that's that's kind of like the, the status quo. But the magic happens when they actually start communicating with each other cooperatively. Um, so you have ideas being generated in the brain, like by the, the control network or the default network, um, and evaluated at the same time by these multiple regions that support the cognitive um, control network. So like I said, this isn't something that you're consciously doing. It's, it's just the way, um, like the way that these, this, this task like unfolds in your brain. Um, it's, it's the way that your brain is kind of like, I hesitate to use the word implements, but like it, it's, it's basically, it's the way that your brain executes this creative process internally. Um, so yeah, that's a really high level, very coarse description of what's going on. Like I, I definitely encourage listeners if they're interested, um, go check out those papers. Like I have links to them all in that article and tons more links, but it's super fascinating stuff. And um, yeah, I, I encourage people to, to dig into it more. <clears throat> so in terms of where the rubber hits the road in photography, how does that translate, you know, in terms of soup to nuts for creativity to be a process that your brain engages in through the use of a tool like a camera. Mm -hmm. Basically, that kind of gets into like the last part of the, the article, which was sort of this application. Um, I can't remember. I, I don't think I really set out to have an application part of that article, but I, I kind of like as I was writing it, I realized like, oh, like maybe maybe thinking about creativity this way could be useful. Um, so the last part, I, I have a bunch of recommendations for like breaking out of uh, creative ruts and sort of some ideas on on how to move past move past that, um, but but the like looking back, I think the actual recommendations in the, in that section like they're not really that interesting. Um, it's all stuff we've heard before. Uh, nothing. I don't really think there's anything novel there. But what I tried to do was sort of like bin these common suggestions um, for overcoming common challenges to creativity into either like impairments of idea generation or impairments of idea evaluation. So for example, um, things like stress and lack of motivation, like the way I understand it, like those would be, those would impact your uh, idea generation. Like if there's something getting in the way of, of coming up with new ideas. So maybe you can have like a, a more targeted approach to um, sort of addressing those and overcoming the, the rut. Uh, on the other hand, like if you feel like you're creating images that aren't your own, um, if you're doing it for the likes, you know, doing it for the gram, if you're feeling dissatisfied with your work, in my view, that's an issue with idea evaluation. Like you're not, you're not evaluating your work on your own terms. You're evaluating it, it like basically on somebody else's terms. Um, so yeah, like my hope, my hope with that last section was that attributing these challenges to one component or the other of this model. Uh, would sort of give us ideas about how to overcome them. I, I don't know if I was successful in that, but I had fun writing it. Well, so you, you wrote that, you know, a little over two years ago. <clears throat> how have you implemented it in your own work? Ooh, um, I think <laughs> that's a good question. I've had a lot of creative ruts since then. Um, <laughs> right, I mean, everyone has them all the time. Yeah, right? yeah I, think, I think for me, it's just... 
sort of like having this, having like done this this research and um, sort of having this understanding of of how creativity unfolds, like. I think probably the biggest thing is I I can do damage control now a little better. Like if I'm not feeling creative or like if, if I'm if I'm in a rut, like I I know that there's a million other things going on in my life that are probably impacting some network in my brain, and it's just like creativity is just not going to be a priority at that moment. And I think a lot of times we can sort of spiral from there. Like you you're you're stressed out about this or that in your real in in the real life in your real life, you want to be creative, you want to go out with your camera, but you're just like not feeling it. And so you end up forcing it. And so you end up getting even more frustrated and then you get even more stressed out because you can't, you know, your outlet's gone. Like you're, you're this, this outlet photography is not like giving you what, what it usually does. Um, and so like in the past, I've definitely felt times where I sort of like spiral in, in those situations and it just like, it just gets worse. Um, but I think that now I, I, I think I'm a lot more relaxed about it. Like if, if I'm not feeling it, I, I sort of just like reassure myself, like, yeah, this is part of the process. It's not going to be pedal to the floor all the time. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in my life. It'll change. It'll be different next week. Uh, and then, you know, maybe I can try something else. Like I, one of the suggestions I had, uh, was to, uh, sort of like, try out other creative endeavors and like for me writing is like a really good alternative if photography's not working out and so i'll just i don't try to force it i don't try to force the photography if it's not if it's not working i'll just say all right that's not working i'll try it again in a couple of days let's see if you know maybe i just want to write something or maybe i just want to read I, I mean i don't know i think the biggest takeaway for me was was just like sort of keeping my head when i am it, dealing with those challenges it also seems like that gives you um, some very actionable tool, tools to use for diagnosing kind of what might be causing a lapse in creativity so that you can, you know, identify, okay, is this an idea generation thing or is this an idea evaluation thing? And then you can pinpoint what it might be and start eliminating some of those variables that are causing the issue yeah i think i think that's true i mean all of these suggestions that i wrote uh in that article like they come from my own experience um they're all things that i've i've dealt with and, and that i've tried like you know a big one is sort of doing it for the likes and like yeah i don't like to admit that but there's definitely been times when i was paying way too much attention to social media and not really enjoying photography and um you know having this understanding it's like okay well yeah i'm I'm not evaluating the work for myself. I'm I'm evaluating it for like some magical algorithm, you know, like what the mass is like. And and yeah, I think I, I think it, it has helped me in that regard. So fascinating how numbers impact our how we feel about our photography. I mean for me it's funny, like I don't care if my image has a thousand likes or a hundred likes as long as it has more likes than someone else's photo that's of the same subject <laughs> and that and it's so stupid right like like why why do i do that to myself because it's not even it's it's not even a fair way to think about anything but as soon as i see 
you know, as soon as I see it, like my brain goes there and I'm like, why are you doing that to yourself? You know? Yeah. It's like, you're, you're conscious of it, but you just, you, you, it's just like this, this deep part of your brain. You can't just turn it off. Like, no, I, I know what you mean. And I feel like, I feel like social media kind of exploits that a little bit. Oh, for sure. They've hijacked us so badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You had mentioned earlier that there's a well-established definition for creativity, and I've heard it spoken on many podcasts, and I think it's a useful definition because it's we can wrap our heads around it because I feel like creativity, generally speaking, is one of those kind of nebulous concepts that most people struggle with, especially as they try to kind of overlay it with their own approach to photography, right? Um, and basically you said it, it's creativity is defined as work that's novel, which is new, and useful, which is still kind of broad, but you know. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, what are some ways that nature and landscape photography can check both of those boxes of being novel and being useful? Yeah, I, I think you I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Like novelty is is kind of straightforward. Um, like if you do something that's not been done before, like even if it is totally just garbage, like it could still be technically novel, right? So like that yes. that aspect is. I'm I'm painfully aware of that dichotomy, <laughs> having just finished judging a major international competition. Yeah, yeah, understood, understood. I think that novelty is important, um, and yes. pretty much any definition of creativity that you can find out there uh, in the literature or that I've found, um, like it's going to include novelty. Uh, but you're also right that useful usefulness is a lot more nebulous. So, especially when it comes to art, uh, right? Yeah. Um, so, like. If I if I think back to um, some of the some of the research that I did for that article, um, there were a few other definitions that I that I mentioned there. So like one is novel and intentional. Mm, yes. A another is novel, good, and relevant. Mm. Uh, another is novel, valuable, and surprising. So like there's all these other there's all the, all these other definitions they all do include novelty like that's that's definitely an important component but like what is this other thing that we're that we're like talking around um so yeah so i i guess like my my point is like not everybody necessarily agrees that it, that usefulness is a good criteria um that said what what i think that that second criteria is getting at in terms of photography at least is some sort of effectiveness uh or, or maybe, maybe, maybe impact, but I think effectiveness is probably a better word. So, like, with a nature photo, uh, a nature photograph, you might ask, like, does it move the viewers? Does it impact them? Um, is it more than just a reproduction of something that they saw outside? Does it say something about the experience of the photographer? So, if it's, if the answer to any of those is yes, then maybe to some degree, at least, you could say that it's useful. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I personally don't don't think we should be asking others to evaluate the usefulness of our work in that regard. Um, hmm. I think most importantly, we should be asking ourselves that question. Um, does like you know ask yourself like does the photograph accomplish what I set out to accomplish? Has it has it served its purpose for me? Um, I think that to me like that's a better way to think about 
usefulness. It's, it's, it's maybe a, a, a more selfish approach, but um, I, I have a note here. Uh, I, I don't think I can put it better than Guy Tal did. <laughs> um, he wrote an article earlier this year called On Artistic Usefulness. Uh, yeah, which, forget uh, is, yeah it was, it's like my, it's, it's in my photography article Hall of Fame. It's a super, super article. Um, but he said, uh, usefulness in art is built in baked into the very act and experience of creation. And like for me, like that, that is very consistent with my own approach. Uh, for me, like if creating the photograph has given me the experience that I seek in nature uh, and in some way like reflects that experience, then like to me, that's, that's what matters most. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot about equivalence you know, the whole Alfred Stieglitz and minor white thing mm -hmm. of, you know, images doing more than just representing what they are. <laughs> right. Right. And there's an interesting kind of dichotomy there when it comes to the artistic intent of the photographer versus how the photograph is received. And I've, personally always felt like that's something that isn't talked about enough in terms of like there's lots of photographs that I've made over the last two or three years that when I made the image I did not have a specific intent behind the image I just instinctively or intuitively knew that it was something special that I was capturing um, and then when I shared it with my audience one or two or three people picked up on that specialness and it meant something a little bit different for each one of them that that I wasn't anticipating and I'm always surprised by that um, that usefulness piece of being because you said we shouldn't look to people other than ourselves to evaluate the usefulness of the image but so often I feel like that's sometimes where you get the most value is seeing how your work has impacted others. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that, that's certainly true. Like if you, I, I guess to put it bluntly, like if you care about what others think about your, about your photographs. Um, and I think we all do to some degree. And, and I think sure. that like what you're, what you're getting at is like um, one, like I, I think that that sort of speaks to like your own growth. If if you sort of make an image of something and you don't necessarily know why, and like in the moment, and your viewers can can pick up on something that maybe you yourself weren't consciously aware of. Like I certainly think that that like speaks to your own your own maturity. Um, but yeah, I also kind of think that that's just like that's that's sort of the beautiful thing about art, right? Like it it is like by its very nature, like it is subjective. Like somebody else might uh, see and experience something when they, with my images that, that I don't. I mean, that's, I think that's like a, you know, that's a feature. That's not a bug. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly right. It's, I've just always found that that's such a challenging thing to discuss because um, one of the things that I've noticed in the nature photography community sometimes I feel like there are photographers that 
are trying to make the images about something more when there's really nothing like if there's something there that for for the viewer that's great but i don't think it makes sense to always try to like push people into finding that like sometimes a pretty photograph of a pretty thing is pretty awesome and i some and i like there is this kind of want i feel like from our community for photographs to mean more than sometimes they are yeah i i think that's probably true i think that's like you know that's like the ultimate goal of of yeah. art right is to like be something more than yeah than like what it is uh and it's it's really really difficult i, I it's like it's that's not a trivial thing at all uh, i think that in in that case like it's maybe easy to it's almost like you're trying too hard like you're like and your photograph sort of just becomes like a little bit contrived like um right. i mean in, in in that case like i would say you know it's could be novel but maybe it's not a very effective photograph um yeah I, that's 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 interesting yeah and i think that's why to some degree i feel like competitions get a little bit of a bad rap because competitions offer the photographer a panel of people to react to it you know a, a panel of people mm -hmm. who've seen a lot of images um and if it if it visually impacts one or two or three of those people that's pretty incredible really i mean if you think about it absolutely and um, three to impress three or four people who have been look who've been looking at loads and loads and loads of images because you have to check that novelty box right because they've seen so many pho photographs and then you also have to somehow check that usefulness box in terms of it um striking a reaction in them or conveying an idea to them or uh you know having this dual meaning or something like that so i feel like in some ways like that's where competitions can help kind of guide the community towards like trying to elevate their work to be better over time and i i think people think about competitions as like a popularity thing and it's I think ideally it's not like it's if you look at it objectively it can be more than that yeah I I, I think so um, I think that's really hard I think it's really it hard for uh, it's for also a lofty goal <laughs> <laughs> it is a very lofty goal yeah yes yes yes, um, yes. yeah it's it's I don't it's, it almost kind of feels a little paradoxical to me you know like to have a competition where you want um you're like trying to get artists photographers to to make something uh that has that has this effect like or that, that is effective that can move people um but like i feel like a, a big part of that at least in my experience is like sort of being selfish about it um so mm -hmm. then to turn around and like say okay now submit this piece of art that you just made for yourself to a competition in order to please other judges. Like that's, that's super hard. Like I, you know, I, I know that, you know, the NLPA just, just wrapped up like, um, well, I don't think, I don't think people should make photographs to, to win competitions. I think that's right. A, I agree. I agree. That's a really bad idea, but I think people, I don't think people should necessarily 
not enter photographs into a competition because, you know, they feel like it's not useful. I think getting, seeing that people react to your image in a positive way can be a good way to evaluate, okay, so I thought this was a good photo. Looks like there's some other people who also think that's a good photo, so I'm on the right track here. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's... And it's better than, like, plus one on... <laughs> 500px or whatever, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And like, a, entering a competition like forces you to get your ducks in a row. Like, n unlike any so, uh, social media post is going to. And I think that there's even just like in entering, even if you don't win anything, like even just entering, I think there can be a lot of value to that. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's just interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple three days. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, and it's like we get a lot of feedback from people from the competition like oh i don't how come there weren't more traditional like wide angle grand landscape photographs that won the, the competition and all that and it's like okay like if they're not novel that's a pretty high bar to overcome right off the bat so you know in order for an image to do well in a competition against other photographs it's got to it's got to be novel. It's got to be um, useful, right? <laughs> right. Um, and it has to be technically well executed and all those other things too. So um, I think I think that's why we see uh, we see a lot of photographers that are kind of like you know entering kind of their more confident phase of photography, like you know like Alex Noriega, Guy Tal. Those kinds of images don't speak to them in the same way because they're not they're not novel to them like they've seen those images like they've photographed those images and and i think that's why we see a shift over time towards those more smaller scenes and more right. unique kind of abstract images that have more going on and so i think there's an explanation for why you see that but for me it's ex I, I still get excited to shoot those big scenes yeah, it's a it's a rush. I mean, <laughs> but it's really hard to do it in a way that surprises the viewer. Right. So so would you say uh, I got a question for you. So so yeah. like given this like lofty goal, I mean, would you say that um the NLPA has uh has been successful or or has achieved that to any degree? I mean, I think, you know, if if we're like a measuring our success for that on a little dial from zero to a hundred, I think we're at like four, <laughs> you know, but you know, but it's a positive value. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is like, you know, I think at least from what I've seen, there's people and have been enjoyed it and things like that, but there is a lot of interesting feedback we get from people about, you know, why don't we see these kind of images? Why don't we see those kind of images? It's like, well, yeah. you have a panel of eight people who have seen millions of photographs. Like, in order for that type of image to 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 get scored highly, like, it needs to have a lot of interesting stuff happening. Yeah. I mean, I don't think... I think no matter what you do, you're going to have people that are complaining about it. Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> like, you know, so, yeah. yeah. You can't make everyone happy, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, so you also have an article 
that you wrote entitled Experience is Everything, which I love. Uh, can you tell us how that approach to making images has helped you as a photographer and how it might help others? Yeah, so I, I know I mentioned um, looking back at previous articles and like not really liking them that much, but this is one article that I look back at and I'm like, oh yeah, like that's, I still agree with that. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I like this one. Um, and I feel like I've kind of been talking about this uh, kind of since we started chatting. Um, but yeah, it's just this idea that um, the experience that photography affords me in nature is a lot more important to me than any results that I walk away with. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, that's the bottom line up front. Uh, I think that, um, you know, that's not to say that I don't spend a long time on a particular composition or like making a particular image, but like the point is just that for me, that time is part of the experience that I seek. Um, I hope to walk away with something that I like, uh, an, an image that like I feel represents that experience or speaks to that experience or maybe shares that experience. But if not, like I, I don't, at this point, I don't get too upset about it because that image is not the reason I was out there. Um, so yeah, this, this probably means I am not as prolific as other photographers, and I think that's definitely true. I'm not as prolific as I used to be even, um, but it's not the case. Uh, well, aside from having a three-month-old, like it's not the case that I generally spend less time in nature than I used to, and that's kind of like what, what matters most to me. Um, but yeah, I think this approach, I, I think over the years adopting this approach, not not even consciously, just like drifting slowly towards this approach has really helped um, rid myself of expectations and kind of detach myself from from any results. Uh, I think that it's, it's led to a much more positive and more meaningful experience in nature, which is ultimately like, that's, 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 why, that's why I'm there. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll say like, it's definitely not in my experience, a, a switch that you can just flip. Uh, but keeping keeping this outlook in mind, and maybe you know, maybe it'll help others uh, start to move away from, uh, you know, the the idea of having expectations and the the disappointment that inevitably arises from expectations, um, and and I think it might also help people to kind of refocus their priorities a little bit and and sort of like get back to their why and and remember like what they're doing out there. Um, See, so yeah, that's kind of. That's kind of the gist of it. I think that shooting on um, film, I, in, in that article I mentioned using a, a pinhole camera, yeah. uh, I, I think that in particular has, has really, like I started doing, started shooting on film not that long ago. Um, don't ask me any questions about it. Um, but I, I started shooting about a year ago and then pinhole came not that long afterwards. And I think that that, honestly, I think that that really helped facilitate this, this mindset shift uh, because it really, it really focuses your attention on on your surroundings. Like there's there's very little to to take you out of that moment. There's no there's no screen on the camera. There's no viewfinder on the camera. There's no controls whatsoever. Like there's a a mechanical or there's there's a a little lever that you you move to open the shutter and that's it. Like there's no other controls. And so with that approach, I mean, you've probably seen pinhole images like. Yeah. It's it, it's not really about it's not really about the results anyway. It's so sharp. Yeah, right. Crystal clear. <laughs> right, like it's so many megapixels and Oh yeah. 
Oh my All god, I can't believe how it has in body stabilization of four <laughs> four stops and yeah, yeah. anyway. It's... <laughs> well that's that's man, I was gonna I was gonna drill you on pinhole photography because I feel like that's an interesting approach to to really just freeing yourself to just enjoying yourself in the field and not really yeah. being focused on the end result at all. I mean, literally, like, because right. let's be honest, like, you know, like, you don't really know what's going to happen with pinhole images. Yeah. And so yeah, no, I mean, I experimentation for sure. Yeah. That, and that's that's like why I love it. Um, you know, I could I could talk about pinhole a lot. Um, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but like I, I have fun with it. Um, so like, I mean, yeah, for, for me, like there's, there's the results and there's the experience and pinhole photos are not for everybody. You, you know, I, I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. Like some, some people really think they're just kind of silly. Uh, but, but for me, like they really facilitate that experience that I want. Um, and kind of like on top of that, like there is a forced slowness to using a pinhole camera because, uh, you know, I think the, the camera that I, that I use now it's, it's F one sixty fixed aperture at f160 so all your exposures are going to be long we're talking like one to ten plus minutes like you can't move quickly you you literally have to sit there and just stand there while you're <laughs> while you're exposing so it really like it kind of complements it kind of enhances this experience that i enjoy having right now uh maybe you know i'm probably not going to shoot tons of film it's it's not the cheapest thing to do but um and things might change in the future but but yeah, like it's it's also it is also like you said it is super fun to experiment with. Um, I I have a little thirty five millimeter pinhole camera, and I have literally done like double, triple, quadruple exposures. I've opened the shutter and like swung it around my head. Like you can just like <laughs> yeah, it's like you can do whatever you want. I've done combinations of those. It's just like it's so much fun to play around with. You you might have a little bit of an idea of how it's going to turn out, but you never really know. And there's no instant gratification. Like you're just like well that's that I'll wind it to the next frame and <laughs> see what I can do with that. Right. Do you ever bring uh, both digital and pinhole out at the same time? I, I do. So I had tried that last year and that really didn't work. Like it's, it's kind of almost, even though I feel like my approach is similar with both, like they're different enough that you, it's kind of hard to like, like toggle between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually just recently I, I went out again and I just, um, had my digital camera, I had my pinhole and I was, I knew that like I was mainly out there just for the, for the pinhole. And like I had my camera in my bag, just like as backup, like in case I saw something amazing. Um, and I actually did end up breaking it out and, um, and making just, just one, just one image. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel like it really detracted from the experience. It actually worked out pretty well. So I'll probably be trying that more often. Okay. Cool. How how have you seen embracing film and, and pinhole photography as impacting, uh, you know, your creativity as a process? Um, yeah. And and the and the results on your on your actual photographs. Yeah, um, I mean, like I've said, like it's it's much slower and there's no instant feedback. So I I think that this approach really helps sort of keep you in the moment. Um, it's, it's easy to, it's easy with a digital camera. Like you, of, of course you don't 
have to look at the photos that you take. Like you don't, you don't have to go back and look at them, but like right. at a certain point you're almost silly not to <laughs> like just to, you know, just to check and make sure your focus looks good. I don't, I don't know. Sure. Um, but like, it's right there um, with, with film, with, with um, that, that option isn't even there. Uh, and like with, with panel photography uh, to the extent <laughs> as, as much as you can, you, you really just need to pre-visualize what you what the image is going to look like in your head because there's there's no other way to do it like on you know like a like a film slr camera like there's still a viewfinder you can still see like what the what the image is going to look like more or less but with pinhole that's that's not the case so um yeah it's it's really um yeah it it really like i said it just I, i feel like it it's almost like a magnifying glass it really just like focuses me on the experience that that I'm looking for. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about that experience-driven approach and how it's impacted you. And for me, like, I try to just have fun, you know? Like, if I'm focused on having fun, uh, then the photos will come, and I don't worry about whether sunset's awesome or whatever. It's and that's why I like photographing with like one other person that I really know well because we make silly jokes and you know like make fun of each other and yeah. it's, like it's just fun you know yeah um, and then the photos are just like secondary so I don't know that's really helped helped my approach is just focusing on the good times yeah I mean I think it's I think it's basically like I think we're talking about the same thing I mean I'm going out and um, I think like the the kind of fun that I that I think I'm having like it's almost like a like a kid like you're just yeah. curious you're just like wandering and you're just if something catches you your eye you just you go check it out so it's kind of like that that sort of playfulness um, and for me like that sort of playfulness and openness sort of leads me like like you said like the photographs sort of they just they come like yeah they'll they'll come if you approach it with an open mind right yeah that's awesome well a couple more things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you developed some software or like a program called Color Tools, and I would love for you to tell us what that even is and what does it do and <laughs> why did you create it? Because it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, so Color Tools was a little side project that I um, that I worked on. It's actually just like a command line tool, and what it does is it, it calculates the dominant colors or or color of an image uh, in order to basically let you sort them by like you could have a set of images and then you could sort of you could automatically sort them by their dominant color um the short answer for why is because i wanted a way to do this automatically uh and i wasn't aware of any other uh options for doing that uh the longer answer is um you know there's a million different ways you can order and sequence your your photos in a collection uh and some of my favorite photographers, uh, like Sarah Marino, she, she she sorts them by by color, and I, I believe she just does it manually. But like the way that it looks, if you're sort of viewing them from a distance, like it just it looks really nice and orderly. Um, at, I I just like it. Like so so maybe there's some inspiration there. But um, I could have also done it manually and just sort of like eyeballed it and said, oh, this one's mostly blue, this one's right. mostly red, this one's mostly green. Um, but I'm a lazy software engineer, and uh, I wanted a way to do it automatically, uh, and also, hmm. also objectively. So 
I think there's a way you could do this as a, as a Photoshop action. Actually. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say there, there, yeah, and everybody I've I've talked to about this is like the first thing I say is like, oh, you know, there's a tool for that, right? Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, like you can definitely do this kind of thing in Photoshop. Um, there's some online utilities that Adobe offers. Yeah, right. Adobe.com/slash/color, um, I think. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, like there's there's certainly ways that this can be done outside of you know build, building the tool yourself, um, but. <laughs> But what I what I liked about it was like doing it myself gives me total control over like how it works and how it's used, and right, I can right, right. I can try out different color extraction algorithms. I can generate new graphics from from the results that are extracted. I can script processes together to like perform these operations in bulk um, or in batches. Um, but most importantly, uh, I can solve the problem myself, and it's a good that like doing that is a really like there's no better way to learn about a problem than to like try to solve it. Like and then yeah, totally. Like when I when I when I started this, uh, I realized that oh, extracting dominant color from an image is way more difficult and nuanced than I realized. Um, so so yeah, that that just kind of made it more enticing for me. Like it just made it more interesting uh, as a problem to solve. And so yeah, it just kind of it just kind of grew from there. Like there's a bunch of little things that the tool can do. Um, I'm not sure we have time to dive into how exactly it works, but the project is um, it is open source actually. So, so anybody can go look at it. You can download it. You can use it. Um, I wrote a I wrote a little tutorial that's got like um, a bunch of examples, um, like example input, example output, and kind of like the sorts of summaries that it can generate. Um, yeah. So I yeah, that's what that is. That's what Color Tools is. No, that's awesome because. I was actually thinking about doing something like that manually, like a like a numskull, uh, to for like a recent gallery I did. I was thinking, oh, maybe that would be cool to organize them by color so that it flows, you know. But I didn't. I just got lazy because I also see this is funny. When I organize my galleries, I'm primarily focused on two things. It's sorting by um, aspect ratio and also sorting by like not putting too many things that are similar together. So I want to like mix it up so that, you know, like a, a blue image is not right next to another blue image, but yeah. yours, your approach is kind of the opposite of that. A little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I try not to have like in, in any kind of galleries that I have, like on my website, I try not to have super similar images. Yeah. Generally, I mean, sometimes you do, depending on like what your theme is. Right. Um, right. If it's forest, yeah, uh, good luck. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I, I think like the way I usually approach it, like, I mean, there's there's probably there's probably like you know real artists out there that are just like screaming right now. But like the way that I the way that I do it, like, is I I have a collection of images. Um, there's one that I think is like the star of the show, and that's kind of like what I want to lead with. And so I sort of basically like using this tool that I built, I pick that image as kind of the anchor and then I sort everything else after that. <laughs> and um, if there's like black and white images, most of the time those end up at the very end because <laughs> that's just how my algorithm sorts them. So, um, so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like it, there's, 
I, I don't think I do that for every collection. Like, I don't think it makes sense for every collection, but um, I don't know. It's kind of cool when you, if you've got a ton of images to like zoom out and sort of like see the kind of see the spectrum that you've got in, in your images. I think it would be cool to create a gallery that, or multiple galleries that were just like specific complementary color combinations or, mm -hmm. you know, like something like that. And it's like, how do you, cause then you would have to use that like adobe.com slash color tool. And yeah. then you'd have to like label all the images like, oh, this is blue, yellow, red or whatever. and. And then you, yeah, that would be, I think that would be kind of fun to try to do that. Yeah, that would be super cool. My color tools is not that sophisticated. <laughs> I'm well, sure there's like some. Another, I just gave you I, another challenge, Nick. I know, I know. So so there's probably just, I mean, when you when you boil it all down, I mean, a, a dominant color is just a, a triplet. It's an R and a G and a B. Like you probably just need to do some like mathematical operations to figure out what the complementary color is. Right. Probably, yeah. It'd probably be simple. Those are words that software engineers should never say. Right. Are you familiar with um, the Photoshop filter blur average? Yeah, I think Is so. It kind of like that? It's kind of like that. Um, so you, you've probably noticed, like, if you just take the average of every color in an image, yeah, it's usually like just brown. <laughs> right. Brown, gray, like right. some some variant thereof. Right. Um, so it's poop. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so yeah, to, to, to try to keep it high level, I use, uh, there's a couple of different heuristics that I, that I use in the, in the software. And the one that I have found works best, I think, is it's this algorithm called k-means clustering. And so it's, um, it's a machine learning algorithm. It, it, it's, it's a lot like finding an average, but it's like, instead of just finding one average, you actually find multiple averages in the, in the data. And so what ends up happening is like colors basically get, get binned into like their, their nearest average. Huh. Um, and so if you've got like five averages and then you create a distribution of all the colors in the image and you associate them with their, uh, their nearest average, you can take the one with the highest proportion, the average that has the highest proportion of pixels and that's your dominant color because that's the that's the average that has the most pixels that kind of map to it. So I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it's 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 like finding an average, but it's actually multiple averages. Okay, no, that's cool. I mean, it's like, um, have you ever seen those mosaics where they take like photos of like their dominant color and then they create like another like a mosaic picture out of all those photos? Oh yeah, them? yeah yeah yeah. It's kind of this. Same concept, sort of. It's another. It's another idea I could pursue. Yeah, and you could, yeah, like create a mosaic image out of all my photos. That'd be, that'd be sweet. Yeah, I bet it exists. Uh, yeah, I. That's that. That sounds a little more ambitious. <laughs> Dominant color extraction sounded easy, at least. That actually sounds <laughs> difficult. Yeah. No, I'm sure they're both difficult <laughs> for most people. <laughs> yeah. All right, Nick. So. Last question, who would you recommend for our listeners learn more about for the podcast? All right, let me pull up my list here. Um, all right, so I know some of these people have been recommended before, but I'm hoping that like I can cast another vote for them and, and they'll get on the show. Right. Um, so, so I don't know if that's how it works or not, probably not. 
but the the first one is um, Paolo Valdivia. Yes. Um, yeah. So he's I know he's been recommended before, but he's, I did reach he's out. Awesome. I have not heard back. I'll I'll message him too. I'll I'll, I'll put the pressure campaign on. Yeah. See, that's what um, works. Yeah. I'll I'll do it for real because he's he's a he's a fantastic nature photographer. He's from Chile. Yes. Uh, he's a really kind person. I've actually chatted with him quite a bit just over Instagram. Um, just, you know, small talk kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, really, just really an incredible artist. Yeah. Um, the second one I have is a guy named Michael Forsberg. Not sure if you've ever heard of him, but uh, uh-huh. he's a, yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a conservation photographer based in Nebraska. His work is also amazing and uh, kind of captures the heart and soul of the Great Plains. Um, he's heavily involved in the Platte Basin time-lapse project, which I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but that'd be fun to hear about. Um, it's a fascinating conservation program. Um, I have a, actually have a coffee table book of, of Michael's that um, I love looking through. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be super cool to hear from him. The third one is Donna Doyle. Um, she's a photographer, writer, educator, um, really generous person. Uh, I kind of got to know her because one time one day on on my instagram stories i I asked for advice about writing an artist statement and she actually messaged me and she's like i have lots of thoughts we'll put something together later and i was like damn this is okay like we'll let's see what happens here and she actually emailed me like and she wrote out like all this advice um this like super insightful helpful it's like this is just a, a stranger. Like we, we follow each other on Instagram, but she took the time to like reach out to me. Um, and I, ever since that, I mean, I, I talk with her all the time. Um, super, awesome. another, See, yeah. Instagram does have a use. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I like Instagram stories. That's probably the, the social yeah, yeah. media me avenue that I use the most. Yeah. Um, okay. Two more. Uh, next one is Adam Bolliard. Yeah. Um, so he's another Missouri MD. photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super smart, super nice guy. Um, I think his approach to photography is pretty similar to mine, uh, kind of like with an emphasis on on smaller, quiet scenes. So yeah, I would love to hear. Would, would love to hear him. And then the last one is Saikat Chakraborty. Yes. Um, I I think he's also been recommended. Another super talented photographer um, and writer. He does a lot of really good writing in the Adirondacks. Um, really thoughtful work uh and he he uses his photography and writing in um, pretty interesting creative ways so i'm um, not sure if you've reached out to him let me know if i need to you know start another pressure campaign yeah no i um i talked to both of them off and on quite a bit because they both support the podcast on patreon okay so and i think both of them have really great photography so it's just a matter yeah. of time i think you know what i mean yeah hopefully yeah yeah, sometimes I just like I like waiting back to see if people want to be ambitious and reach out to me first. Oh, really? Okay. Sometimes. Interesting. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, now you, I had to chase you for like months. <laughs> is what I remember. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, rescheduling last. Literally, the day before our, our our we were supposed to have this interview, I I had COVID, and I'm just like, I don't want to be. I, I, I don't want to make my podcast debut with this voice thing. that I have. I had, yeah. to, I had to reschedule with someone else earlier this year for the same reason. I had COVID. Like, it's terrible. Yeah, it's not fun at all. No. Well, awesome, Nick. I'm glad we could do this. And um, let's do a bonus recording on Patreon about 
the importance of photographing areas close to home. Okay, sounds good. Cool. Well, thank you to Nick for sharing your thoughts with us today on the podcast. I think there's some very actionable things that everyone could take away from our conversation and apply to their own approaches to making images, which feels like a huge success in my book. As always, I'd love to hear listeners' feedback about anything you gained from listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please do help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or by sharing the the episode on social media. I appreciate you a lot for doing so. The ultimate way to support the show is on Patreon, a platform we use to keep the show going. A small monthly or annual contribution goes a long way. Thanks to those of you who already support the show, including our newest patrons, Jim Davis, and my wonderful friend, Jimmy Gikis. You're both incredible. Coming up on the podcast, we have Matt Palmer, an Aussie photographer who won the NLPA Project of the Year in 2021. He's also the proud owner and operator of a gallery in Bright, Australia, with his awesome partner and incredible photographer, Mika Boynton, who just won the NLPA Abstract and Details Award. Speaking of Mika, she will also be joining me on the podcast for our very own conversation, and I'm very much looking forward to both of those. That is all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.